At Urban Farm Podcast, we are all about education, and April is Foliar Feeding Month. Have you heard of it? It is a super simple application of spraying liquid organic fertilizer on your trees and garden plants. The leaves, branches, and trunks are incredible at absorbing nutrients. And if your soil isn't great or your pH is off, foliar feeding is a quick and long-lasting fix to get your plants the nutrients they need. Want to learn more? Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, Saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. You're listening to the Urban Farm Podcast, your partner in the grow your own food revolution. Whether you've just been introduced to urban farming or you're a lifelong advocate, we're sure you'll leave feeling more informed, equipped, and empowered to dig deeper into the soil of your local food economy. With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson. Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Barbara Pleasant to talk about gardening to fill your pantry. Barbara is an award-winning writer, having been covering organic gardening and self-sufficient living for more than 30 years. As a contributing editor to Mother Earth News, her work has garnered multiple awards from the Garden Writers Association and the American Nursery and Landscape Association. She has written books on topics ranging from compost to weeds, including Homegrown Pantry, published by Story Publishing, Starting Vegetable Gardens, The Complete Compost Gardening Guide, and The Complete Houseplant Survival Manual. Her columns and articles appear regularly in Mother Earth Living Magazine, at growveg.com, and on other gardening websites. Barbara lives in Virginia, where she grows vegetables, herbs, and fruits, along with a few chickens who all have names. Welcome to the show today, Barbara. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Oh, my gosh. I'm excited to have you and talk about your new book, which I have a copy of right here. Oh, it only took us five years to write it. (laughs) That's usually how long they take, right? Well, you know, we kicked around. I've worked with this publisher with Story for many. They've published most of my big books. Uh Nice. We knew what we wanted to do, but not exactly how to go about it and... I kind of hung back a little bit, I think. Mm-hmm. Well, you you preserve food yourself, don't you, Greg? I do. Okay, so you know the kind of work that's involved in growing your own food and oh my gosh, yes. preserving it as well. And so I thought, well, maybe I'm leading people down a primrose path here. You know, it might be something I want to do, but 
am I pushing this really intensive mm-hmm. thing on other people? Right. And then I was giving a talk at a Mother Earth News Fair, and the people were so hungry for this information. It's mm-hmm. like they were Pun pushing intended. me. I yeah. wasn't pushing them. Right. And that's when it turned around for me, and I said, yes, we definitely need to do this. So. Well, and preserving food is actually quite simple, is it not? Yes, it is, and especially since different types of preservation, you know, fermentation, nobody used to ferment anything except maybe some dill pickles. Right. And that was all Americans ever were interested in fermenting, and now a lot of us are fermenting a lot of things, and it makes it more interesting, and and in cool weather anyway, it gives you options. I know you're in a warm climate, and... Where I am, it, it gets quite warm in the summer, and I don't ferment when it's hot. I only mm-hmm. ferment in the spring and in the fall. But Why is that? Because if it's cooler, and, and I get better results. Uh-huh. See, we, you know, we, I'm up in the mountains, uh-huh. and we, we don't need a lot of air conditioning, and so the house is not exactly temperature controlled. Mm-hmm. All right, uh-huh. <laughs> That's how we like it. So. Got it, yeah. Yeah, oh, we have to do that temperature control here. Otherwise, six months a year, we'd be uh, roasting. Well, I know. I grew up on the Gulf Coast. I can understand that. Yeah. 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 So your latest book published at Story Publishing is Home, mm-hmm. Homegrown Pantry. Homegrown Pantry. Let me, let me read the subtitle. Yeah. A Gardener's Guide to Selecting the Best Varieties, Planting the Perfect Amounts for What You Want to Eat All Year Round. Tell us about the book. I'm, I, I've got an uh, advanced reader's copy here, and it looks like a lot of fun. It was. It was a lot of fun. It was last year at this time, in about the 1st of April, that I was told we were going to photograph this book at my house. Oh, nice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I don't know if you're aware of how many coats of paint it takes to cover naughty pine cabinets. But oh, my gosh. Anyway, um, things got real busy mm-hmm. and but now i look through the book and i say i made that i, I put up those preserves i dried that rhubarb you know and nice. it, it's kind of nice. it has a, a good feel to it but i think the a point is i'm not telling anybody go out and grow all of your own food mm-hmm. that's not the idea it's more grow enough of what you really like to eat so that almost every day of the year you're eating something from your garden right and so it's it's really towards that continuity. It's to me, it's more of a lifestyle. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm promoting um, kind of food self responsibility as a lifestyle because it's healthy. Yeah, food self responsibility. Say more about that. Well, we take so much for granted. I'm of the generation where you know mothers were encouraged to feed their children Velveeta and Coca Cola. Mm. So. To, to have come full round, you know, this afternoon I'm making nettle tea. There's, there's a whole, it's a different lifestyle. But, okay, food self-responsibility, when you know how to provide yourself with at least some of your food, mm-hmm. it gives you a feeling of security in the world that you cannot, you can't duplicate it any other way. I often tell people that the single most important thing that you can learn to do right now is grow your own food. And the process is wonderful. Yeah. You know, it's a very centering thing. And some one of the questions, you know, we get asked, I'm sure you do, well, why should I grow my own food? I can buy it pretty cheap. Mm-hmm. And it's organic. Well, 
you know, I've got a lettuce bed going out there, and I've already done at least 50 neat D-bends maintaining this lettuce Oh, bed. of course. And I, you know, at first I had glass windows over it, and I'm stretching, and I'm picking up windows. And so there's, there's the exercise end of growing that lettuce. Mm-hmm. So it's not about the salad. It's about the exercise. And while I've been out, I've noticed that the birds have changed. Mm. You know, the winter birds are leaving. The summer birds are coming. And so there's, there's three dimensions. You're out in nature. You're getting exercise. And at the end of it all, you have wonderful fresh, full of its nutrients, hasn't been stored, hasn't been shipped. Mm-hmm. Great food. Nice. Me, it's a win all around. I don't know why. Everyone doesn't want to do it. Yeah, no kidding. So in your book, you have a section, and, and I was this caught my eye. It's called 12 Common Traits of Pantry Gardeners. Tell me about that. Well, it's interesting that a, a rather in-depth study was done of mm-hmm. people who were into self-provisioning. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're used to growing their own food and putting their own food by. Okay, well, why are they doing this? And what we've already discussed, oh, it's fresh, it's better, it's good for you. That was not really what was driving them as much as one thing I think was full trust and knowledge mm-hmm. of what's in their in the food. food. Yes. You know, back in the 80s, Wendell Berry talked about the comfort of the eater. You know, that when you're eating your food, you're not worried about pesticides or hormones or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. And I think that is a, a major driving force. Um, another thing that I think is important is you share. Gardeners share. Mm-hmm. You always have extra of this or, or somebody else has extra of that. And you share not only food, but recently I gave someone some herbs that they wanted and they brought me handmade soaps, you know. Oh, nice. So those kind of things going on and it happens all the time yeah yeah excellent so you talk about eating all year round from your garden now doing that down here in the desert is actually kind of easy because we grow all year round right you know here in arizona that's not what you're talking about here is it no see i am in zone six Mm-hmm. So it gets cold in the wintertime. We mm-hmm. have snow, and the, the garden shuts down. Mm-hmm. In addition to the difference of uh, it being cold in the wintertime, you know, the days get short. Right. And I'm not nearly as far north as many people. And so in the wintertime, in addition to it being cold, you don't have sunlight. And so mm-hmm. even the organic farmers that use high tunnels, they wait till February. They say, we got to wait for the light to come back. Yeah. To, to really start right. start growing again, so um, so you have to provision yourself. There will be, you know, nothing coming from the garden after about the second week of November until April sometime. Mm-hmm. So you better plan ahead if you want to be eating from your garden every day. Right. So what does that look like? This planning process, and what are you planning to do? Well, one of the things that I like to do is emphasize the crops that are easy to store. Mm. Um, Potatoes, sweet potatoes. I am the queen of pumpkins. Mm. I could grow enough pumpkins for half the county if I wanted. (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Nice. 
But um, onions and garlic, I, I'm not self-sufficient. I'm self-sufficient in garlic and pumpkins uh-huh. and t- tomatoes, peppers, but right. um, not in onions. I cannot grow enough onions, <laughs> even though I diversify there because we're mm-hmm. not just talking about bulb onions, but also shallots, which store longer than bulb right. onions. And right. so they come in really handy. Plus, I think I have three or four types of green onions or multiplying onions. Mm-hmm. And, right. You know, so uh, it, that, there's always a challenge left. You can't grow it all all the time. Yeah, that's true. That's true. So how all right? you mentioned onions multiple times. How do you preserve them? Well, I tell you, mostly I want to just dry them really well and keep them in the basement. Oh, I still have some garlic from last year. Mm-hmm. But last year I also had an unusual pest problem. I had, um, what do we call them, garlic or onion root maggots. They're oh. the larvae of a fly. Right. And they, they flew in May, and I didn't know they were down there. And so, I, you know, as I was going through the onions over and over again, I kept finding more that weren't going to store. And I ended up making, I dry leeks. So mm-hmm. I didn't, I didn't want to dry the bulb onions because leeks are so easy to dry. So what I ended up doing was making a shallot confiture. It took three days. It was some French thing, but oh, were they <laughs> delicious. And, but the best thing is an onion jam to oh, put good. on a sandwich or into a salad dressing or something like that. It's a canned thing. Wow. Well, <laughs> my, my mind just went totally bonkers there. It was like an onion jam. I, the, that's like an oxymoron, putting those two words in the same sentence. Tell me about that. Well, um, when I make jams and jellies, I use the low sugar calcium um, stuff, Pomona pectin. Go ahead and say the name. And so I use the Pomona pectin approach to use only enough sugar, you know, to balance the vinegar. Mm -hmm. And um, I did did start with a recipe, but as you know from canning, if you're using high amounts of uh, vinegar and sugar, you're (laughs) in the safe range. But this stuff is great to spread on a sandwich. So is it sweet or is it savory? It's it's barely sweet. Uh-huh. So so yes, it's a sweet condiment, but n- not nearly as sweet as it could be. Um, but it's been great fun and to wow. have in the kitchen. And when I read about it, you see your reality in the garden pushes you to try new of things. Of course it and, does. And so that was one of my favorite things of last year. Ended up being this jam made out of onions. Onions. Wow. Yeah. My brain is still just trying to wrap around that one. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. So this takes time. Preserving your own food. One way is canning. You know, the easy, I guess the easy way is to put it in a root cellar. If you have a root cellar, unfortunately here at the urban farm in Phoenix, we don't have anything underground. Uh, I keep my potatoes under my bed. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. It's dry and it's cool and it's Mm -hmm. dark. Oh, and um, it's in the summer because our potatoes come in and we still have two or three more months of warm weather. So some of them I will just, I have been known to dig a deep hole and bury them. Really? Yeah. And that way they stay, you know, if you d- dug a hole 18 inches deep uh-huh. and fill the bottom, say, 10 inches with potatoes, which is not a lot of potatoes, but anyway... Right. Um, and then cover them up and, you know, cover they will stay down there until you dig them up. Come, cover them up with dirt? Yeah. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And I guess they, you know, in the wintertime, they go dormant. Yes. Even though the um, there are always potatoes left and where I planted them mm-hmm. the year before, it doesn't matter how meticulous I am about picking, picking them up. There's still going to be some down they there. They come back, yeah. We we have that with sweet potatoes here, but potatoes are not so. Uh, you easy do? To grow. Yeah. Oh no, we have to baby sweet potatoes. Mine are just starting to grow mm. indoors. <laughs> right. Wow. So. But sweet potatoes are such a wonderful storage crop. I mean, they are. Yeah. I tell people if you can grow sweet potatoes, grow sweet potatoes. Mm-hmm. Because it, unless you have horrible deer problems, you are going to get a crop. Yes. So. We do get a lot of them. And so once I dig them up, uh, I usually just clean them and stick them in the refrigerator. Is that what I should do? No, you don't need to refrigerate sweet potatoes. They can stay at room temperature. Hmm. Well, room temperature where? Room temperature at your house or room temperature at my house? Because <laughs> <laughs> in the summertime... My extra, my extra ones spent the first half of winter in the basement, uh-huh. and they've been up in the main living area. Got it. <laughs> for a couple of months so what's left not much left it's kind of sad this time of year i look in my pantry where there's mm-hmm. you know in october it was full of canned goods and oh, yes. winter squash and all kinds of things i make my own wine we've even drunk up the wine so <laughs> <laughs> but now it's looking very lean and yeah. you know i try to take things in order and use the things in the refrig in the freezer mm-hmm. in the well, the, just the plain stored things, the sweet potatoes and pa- potatoes and things. Yeah. And then the freezer and then the canned stuff. But it's all looking lean right now. Yeah. At the end of, at the end of your winter season, yeah. Yep, yeah, yep. So in your book, you talk about there's five basic food preservation methods. That's cold storage, which we were just talking about, right? Potatoes under your bed. Right. We'll just call that cold storage. Cold storage. And you can, in, in many climates, you can push your luck with root crops, mm-hmm. packing them in damp sand or sawdust and keeping them in a cold place. Oh. That's, yeah. That's a tip in sawdust. I never even thought about that. And you know, another thing I had heard of and had never tried it was pulling up a cabbage and sticking the roots in a bucket. So uh-huh. that this mature cabbage, uh-huh. and, and take off all the outer leaves so you have a semi-trimmed head of cabbage, it will hold in that bucket of soil for a long time. <laughs> oh, interesting. Just dig out and put... Just pull it up. And wow. you know, the uh, the roots don't go far right, on a exactly. cabbage. They're just yeah. right down there. Mm-hmm. And stick it in a bucket of dirt. And, you know, if you wanted to get them out of the way so you could go ahead and... and um, plant something else, mm-hmm. which is what I'm often interested in doing, they're right there keeping just fine. It's amazing. Interesting. And you, I guess you could just put that in your pantry as well. Yeah. And then oh. when you're ready, put them, you know, clean them up, put them in the refrigerator. Bag. Yeah, exactly. A few heads of cabbage in your refrigerator gets full real quick. Exactly. Exactly. You need another refrigerator, just like we need another freezer, which that's the second preservation method, freezing your homegrown bounty. Uh, and I, I found for me that we freeze way more than what we use. Oh, really? Yeah. I've, I've started running. Heidi and I have to manage that better um, about it because we, you know, we still have some peaches left over from last season. And what we're finding is they get freezer burned. Yeah. 
Last year, I started using uh, a vacuum sealer for mm-hmm. the first time, mm-hmm. and it really does make a difference. Mm. You can't use it with wet things or the water goes, you know, goes out. But right. Anything that's kind of solid or semi-dry, they're great. I know I did a, a lot of half-dried tomatoes where you dry them about halfway. Oh, right. And, and then vacuum sealed them, and they're as good as the day I put them in there. Oh, nice. Nice. Well, and what we do with tomatoes is we actually dehydrate them, which is your the next food preservation method you speak about, uh, drying. Yeah, I do hydrate more tomatoes than I can these mm-hmm. days. Yeah. Um, it's just so easy. You don't peel them. You know, <laughs> All you do is slice them and put them in there. And um, I like using them. I like cooking with the dried tomatoes. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And how do you use them? Well, any kind of a soup or anything that, or a casserole, anything that's going to cook for any length of time, um, you can add it. And if I'm making chili, a lot of times half the tomatoes are going to be dried tomatoes. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah, and then I mentioned doing the half-dried tomatoes. So those are still like little pillows of tomato wonder when you thaw them out. Mm. And put those on pizza and sandwiches and even in salads they're really good nice you know i hadn't thought about so you're giving me lots of great ideas barbara thank you Um, well see that's the thing it's one thing you're a gardener you're a food preservationist and you're also a cook yes so you're thinking along all three tracks at the same Mm -hmm. time well i hadn't thought about taking those dehydrated tomatoes and put them in soup Oh, makes, yeah. Makes, I use them to make sense. a salad dressing. Just put warm water over uh-huh. some tomatoes for a little while and start adding olive because, oil and balsamic yeah. vinegar, and you've got a really nice salad dressing going. <laughs> nice. Nice. And then the fourth method of uh, food preservation you talk about in your book is canning. Say more, say more about it, that. It, you know, it, I like to put it last. It's the most complicated, mm-hmm. and it's the most fearsome to people as well. Um, well, and it's really quite easy. It is. It's really quite easy, um, especially if you're at sea level like you are. <laughs> yeah, or close, yeah. I'll t- I'll- I'm at 3,000 feet where water boils at 207 degrees, uh-huh. so <laughs> it's a little more complicated. Right. But, see, I, I think it's wonderful these days that food preservation is not being strictly defined as canning. Right, you know, exactly. It used to be that if you said you preserve food, oh, you can. Well, yeah, I do, but I also ferment and I dry and, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. So freezing is just like super refrigeration. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So I actually learned how to can in when I was a senior in high school. I had planted my first gardens here in Phoenix in 1975. And around that time, I planted some fruit trees, and one of them was a peach tree. And so by 1978, three years later, I was getting so many peaches, I didn't know what to do with them all. So I said to my buddy, hey, Tim, I, you know, I'd love to learn how to can. He says, my mom will teach you. So I learned how to can from Tim's mom in high school. Isn't that great? Yeah. And peaches, what's better than um, canned peaches except canned pears? Oh, no kidding. No we kidding. have a big old pear tree, and it's just getting ready to burst into full bloom. I'm excited. <laughs> nice. Nice. And we're just getting ready. We're, I was just looking at my peach tree this morning, and they're starting to turn color. Wow. So we'll have peaches in about 30 days here. And you've got some hot weather coming up to sweeten them up? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Absolutely. So, and so canning, you know, I, I always like to dispel the myth anytime I'm talking about canning. Canning is actually quite simple. You just have to know this, know the rules, right? Yes, and you have to follow the rules. Yeah. And I think one of the things that perhaps we both hear is I tried my aunt or grandmother's or whoever's mm, recipe yep. and it didn't work. Yep. And it's so sad, or, or, or I just, I, I heard from somebody that put up 10 quarts of pickles and forgot the salt. <laughs> Oops. <You know? laughs> Things happen. Yeah. But, you know, I, I think I've learned to check and double check the list, mm, mm -hmm. almost as if you were baking. You know, baking yeah. is so exact. You have oh, to measure things. exactly. And, you know, you forget one thing and the whole thing fails. You know, canning is not that uh, complicated. And once you get your equipment down yeah. and know all the little things you need to get out in your kitchen in order to do the project, mm -hmm. it, it, it gets real smooth after yeah, a while. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. It gets real smooth. I like that. Yeah, and of course I'm one that, you know, it'll often be on into the evening before everything's done, done. and put away. Yep. And see, this is part of the challenge, too. During food preservation season, <laughs> you have to clean the kitchen before you start. Yep. And then you have to clean the kitchen when you're finished yeah. because it has to be ready for the next food preservation project the next day. Right. And um, But I like to linger and listen to the jars pop. Oh, yes. Tell people what that is because it is, it is wonderfully fun. Well, when you when you use canning jars with the the lids that seal, mm -hmm. and you when you're processing the food, excess heat is pushed out, and the contents of the jars are so hot that as they cool, they pull a vacuum mm -hmm. and super seal that lid, and you hear it pop. And that little pop, it's not just a wonderful sound. It says, "You did it! I did it! it That's worked. right! Exactly! They sealed! <laughs> exactly! Exactly!" <laughs> Exactly. And then the next best step is six months later or nine months later, you pull that jar out of the pantry and you pop it off and it, it, yeah. it, 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 it kind of makes a sucking pop noise. Yes. And, and then you, and then you lean over and put your nose in it uh -huh. and smell it. I yeah. just did that. The reason I brought this up at this particular moment is yesterday I opened a jar of apricot I'm not going to call it jam because I didn't put a whole lot of sweetener in it, but it was just, mm -hmm. you know, compote. That's a, that's a good word for it. I just, you know, and I put it on my French toast in the morning. Oh, oh, that sounds delicious. Oh, and I had some vegan ice cream the other night that I put it on. <laughs> we can't grow apricots here except as flowering trees. Uh, so what about peaches? Can you grow peaches? Growing peaches organically is a huge challenge mm -hmm. because of mm -hmm. brown rot, um, a fungal disease that's yeah. encouraged by the um, uh, damp weather. We have right. high humidity, and um, it's a constant threat. And so a lot of times people will plant a peach tree, and it'll grow to maturity, and they'll get two good crops. And, then and that's it. Nah, it'll yeah. go downhill from there. But we, have, we do great with apples and with... Um, Pears. Pears. You said that. And yeah. small fruits. And nice, nice, nice. Okay, good. And the fifth, I said we were going to mention the fifth preser five preservation methods, and you already kind of alluded to it, and that's fermentation. That's something yeah, the that, mysterious one. Yeah, exactly. Tell us about that. 
Well, it's probably the oldest form mm. of food preservation. Yep. And when, when we're talking about vegetables, we're talking about salt fermentation, where you use salt to limit the microorganisms that can grow. And it it's, it's, sounds silly to say the food knows what to do. <laughs> but it does. But, but it does. Yeah. A cabbage, particularly, you can use cabbage as your teacher because it's the most wonderful vegetable to ferment. Mm-hmm. You know, we're all familiar with sauerkraut, which is fermented cabbage, if it's done correctly. But, you know, when I was writing the book, I was pushed to try some other things. Do you know what's really, really good? Tell me. Fermented peas, snap peas. Oh. They are delicious. Hmm. Like, they they call to you from from the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. Come and eat some of me. Wow, they and they're so really prolific. Good. And they're so prolific. Yeah, and they're pretty. And yep. so I'm I'm really looking forward to fermenting more um, peas this year. Well, the, one thing that, and, and I know this from experience, one thing, when you're getting ready to start this preservation process, nature is so incredibly prolific. You kind of have to get yourself set up Make sure you have all the right steps in place so you know where you're going because you're going to get so much. Have you found that to be the case? Well, you do, especially if you're growing something knowing um, that you're going to be putting up a lot of Uh it. You you do have to prepare for that. But as a gardener, you've got several days warning, you know, or you've been, let's say you're just going to make a batch of pickles, which isn't, you know, a multi-step, even if you're canning them. You still have to prepare them and salt them and soak them and Mm -hmm. then, you know, all that thing. It's a half a day by the time you're done, even if you're doing the quickie kind. So, but you you see that kind of coming up on the horizon. It it is time consuming, but it's so worthwhile. Yeah, especially when you're eating the fruits of your labor months later. Now you've got me thinking about that apricot compote that you made. Oh, yeah. I'm down to two jars of peaches. Ah, yeah, I know. We run out, and then it's like, okay, the apricots are on the tree right now. (laughs) I'm waiting for you. And I I, uh, I run a fruit tree program, education program here in Phoenix, and one of the things that I do for my neighbors on my street is I've over the years I've given them all fruit trees and Jenny down the street has a, a an apricot that I gave her that pretty much feeds the entire neighborhood. Wow. Yeah, it is one of the most productive apricots I have ever seen. And uh so besides the few hundred that I get from the trees here, I get several hundred or maybe even a thousand from her every year that I get to do something with. Was it a seedling from your tree? No, no. I we we do grafted trees here, so it's a okay. it's a probably it's either a Katie or a gold kissed apricot. Nice. Um, and it's you know it's one of the two varieties that do really well here. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to shift on you, and I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that fear, and what you might have learned from it. Ooh, failures, uh-huh. failures. You know. Because I learned to garden in a warm climate mm-hmm. where the season goes on and on. Um, and at the time, you mentioned back in the 70s learning to do this. I was too, only I was in the southeast, and all of the organic gardening literature was coming from either New York or California. Mm-hmm. And and so nobody 
could tell me when to plant different things because here I was, I was in zone 7B with this long growing season and didn't know that some things had really short little mini seasons within the season. And that's when they wanted to grow. So, and also you'll recall way back then, you grew these really basic, boring vegetables. You grew carrots, corn, tomatoes, peppers, you know, beans, but you did not grow mescaline. I don't think the word even existed existed in the English language. And um, bulb fennel was another one. Never seen it. (laughs) Well, I grew arugula and told Roz Creasy, the queen of edible landscaping, that it tasted like burnt tires. (laughs) (laughs) She said, oh, Barbara, you're not doing it right. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And now I tremendously enjoy arugula twice a year. It does fine in the spring, although the flea beetles like it very right. much in the spring. But in the fall, it's just a no-brainer. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why did I have trouble with that? But it's learning when to plant what right. is complicated. Where I live, you start Brussels sprout seeds the first week of June. Oh, wow. You know, weird stuff like that. Yeah. And, um it just takes a long time to figure it out. Figure and out. then you figure, oh, why didn't I know that all along? Yeah. Well, those those people that live in the desert here, I have a planting calendar that they can go download at plantingcalendar.org, but that's for the desert area. So I always... Yeah, en- and I have one locally, yeah, but, exactly. you know... I always, yeah. I always encourage people to go find a planting calendar because it'll save you so much. And by the way, our brassicas, like the one you just mentioned, uh, Brussels sprouts... We plant, yeah. we plant those in September. You see? Yeah. But see, uh, a lot of the gardening books will just lump it with the cabbage family uh-huh. and say, get it out early spring. And now if you do that here, and in most of the country, actually, if you put out Brussels sprouts in spring, mm-hmm. they're going to get big and pretty just when all the insects arrive to eat them up. Ah. And then the sprouts themselves are going to do what they call blast. They're just going to open up into yep. these little flower-looking things. Yep. And you'll never get a beautiful Brussels sprout. Right, so, exactly. Right. Exactly. And, and if you try that in spring here in the desert, they immediately, you call it blast, I call it bolt. They immediately go to seed because it's just too hot. Wow, they yeah. do. Oh, yeah. Wow. Brussels sprouts broccoli, cabbage, all that stuff is a uh, an early fall crop here in the desert. Otherwise, so you don't get a spring crop of the cool season things at all? Of the brassicas. Here's the cool thing about growing here in the desert. We can actually grow kales, uh, you know, the leafy greens, the hardy leafy greens, and, and really lettuces and spinaches and that kind of stuff in January, February, March, April, I have dino kale in my yard that's a year and a half old at this point and still producing. Oh, so it's gotten tall with the top knot on it. Exactly. And it just Those keeps... are so pretty. It's like a Dr. Seuss thing. When <laughs> exactly. That exactly. So what do you consider your biggest success? I can grow blueberries. Mm. I don't I don't know if you were looking for a personal successor. No, that's amazing. Success. I am good at blueberries. I prune them, I mulch them, and, and we pick solid for a month. Wow. And we stop at about 10 gallons, and that's about <laughs> all the blueberries I can use. Yeah. And 
So you get them fresh and then you can them? No, um, I generally, you know, that's a busy time of year. Mm -hmm. It's June and early July when they're in. So they all just get rinsed and and put in the freezer. Freezer, And so I make a couple of gallons of blueberry wine. And yeah, and once they've been frozen, in fact, one of the things I learned writing the homegrown pantry Mm -hmm. is things that have been frozen are ready to kind of break down and blueberries can go from the freezer to the dehydrator oh that's good to know they will dry because they you know their skins have been breached by the freeze and thawing process and um so i'll dry some because those are neater to eat as snacks Mm -hmm. (laughs) right exactly and then all my charity cooking i'm I live in an interesting small community. It's it's very rural, Floyd, mm-hmm. Virginia, but we're also very involved here. And I'm in two community, you know, groups: Sustain Floyd to make Floyd a more resilient community, and then another one, another group mm-hmm. that we we're just trying to build a better community. Yeah. But there's a lot of cooking that goes into this. Mm, nice <laughs> for, for colored covered dish dinners. Yep. And, all that kind of thing. And so I take a blueberry buckle or blueberry cobbler or blueberry something to almost everyone. Yeah. Nice. Nice. So what drives you? You know, I love the idea of improved food security for everyone. Yeah. That that neighborhood now again have gardens in them. It always bothers me when I'm on a plane taking off or landing and looking in people's backyards because I'm that nosy Mm -hmm. and (laughs) not seeing gardens, seeing, you know, nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm like, look at all that wasted space. It could be so much better. And then the process plugs you into nature's reality. Yeah. And I'm kind of big into nature's reality these days. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So much is some with so much is false, and so much is pretend. Mm-hmm. You know, social networking is kind of a pretend world. <laughs> yeah, it's a real world. Yeah, and you can spend your time however you choose. So. I think it's a good choice to invest your time in your creative thought, in your food supply. In your dirt. Yep. In your dirt. Yep. I was, uh, a couple of times over the past decade, I've been in Europe, and one of the striking things, given I'm, I'm a gardener and a gardener educator, one of the striking things there is everybody grows food. I was in Croatia, and I was in Italy, and Switzerland, and people have yards, and there's food growing. And another thing, they consider it growing medicine. You know, mm-hmm. because I, I know I, my daughter was in Russia uh, with a cold, and, and a lady took her over to the currant bush. <laughs> you need to eat these, eat yep. these, eat these. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we could be much more edible in our public spaces. Cool. I'm all about education, and I have to know, is there a book that's been influential for you in this process in your life? Oh, there have been a bunch of books that have been influential. I'm a reader. I oh, like books, nice. and I trust books. Mm-hmm. You know, I got my start with a book called The Organic Gardener mm. by Catherine Osgood Foster. She's passed on, but you can buy this used for 50 cents. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it is the coolest book. Now, I think in terms of recent books, 
this isn't about gardening, but one that's changed my life is What the Robin Knows mm. by John Young. How birds reveal the secrets of the natural world. You will not hear birds the same again once you've read this book. Yeah. You understand what they're, not what they're talking about, but what they're trying to talk about. Yeah. And what the different sounds mean, what the chipping means, and um, it's just fascinating, the the change. And, of course, here I am in a temperate zone, and right now is when the summer birds start appearing and the winter birds take off for Canada. Oh, right. Right. So right now it's all just crazy out there. But, um, you know, the, like the songs or the males declaring territory. Mm. Period. Mm-hmm. That's all that's about. Interesting. Well, here we are off talking about birds. <laughs> it's all about birds nature. Such, you have chickens and I have chickens. Of course. They're dangerous creatures. They can hurt one another easily. Yes, they can. And and so that they have dis- developed song mm-hmm. as a way of saying, how, look how big and strong I, I am, how yep. long I can sing, and... It's just fascinating. Well, and they also make noises when they're not feeling so good. <laughs> so, yeah, looking to nature and looking, I'm all about that and this notion of permaculture and, you know, plugging into nature. I'm, uh, uh, I love what Toby Hemingway, the late Toby Hemingway um, said. He says, nature always bats last. So we best get used to that as humans. Oh, it's always there. Yeah. It's always working, and yeah. it's so powerful. You know, one of the things that I think comes to you when you get involved in growing your own food is kind of a sense of, of power that comes from being aligned with nature. Mm-hmm. You know, that, okay, we're all in this together. Yeah. And then there'll be a hailstorm, and you'll say, why? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Why me? Yeah, yeah. So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners? Well, it depends. You have to start with where you are. You know, one of my books is called Starter Vegetable Gardens, Mm. and it has the most simple way to begin. And so I'm used to talking to beginning vegetable gardeners quite a bit, and I tell them to not get too ambitious at the very beginning Mm. and get to know only a few crops because they're all different, and you can't generalize that you, you treat them all the same. And then to build on your successes, then with old hands like us, I think it's best to change things up from year to year and not grow the, the same things. You know, it may be after having this kale with you for a year and a half, you've had enough of it for a while. Yeah. You can try these new, new old heirloom yellow collards. Have mm-hmm. you heard of yellow cabbage collards? No, I haven't. Oh, they're so tender and nice. Oh, nice. <laughs> things to try are old yeah. things Ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, and that's often that's that's what I do to experiment. Like right now, I, I was out in the garden this morning, and it's warmed up here in Phoenix over the past three or four years. And I planted a mango in the backyard, and the mango has a blossom on it. And wow, yeah, I you know, I, it, it's like okay, it's blossoming now after being in the ground for two years, and the mango blossom is teeny is it really it's really small i'm you know like the size of a you know the pin head you know not the not the point but the other head the other side Uh you know like two or three of those in size small Mm 
Mm-hmm. So it's like, and a, and a, you know, a base, a softball size mango comes out of this. It's like, right. isn't nature interesting? Right, yeah. right. Look at a tomato, you know, oh, a big yeah. old tomato, man. How many yeah. seeds are going to come out of that? Oh, no kidding. Enough, yeah. enough for enough tomatoes for your lifetime if you save them. <laughs> so, well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experience with us today, Barbara. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. This has been wonderful, but I feel like we've just been kind of shooting the breeze here. That's what we do here at Urban Farm Podcast. We just get together and chat. It's it's fun. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. A, and that's the other thing we do. We just have fun doing it. So <laughs> how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, my easiest access point is the Internet. I'm BarbaraPleasant.com, and I have a, uh, a contact form there if you want to ask me something. And, of course, you can find me on Facebook, and I've written so much that I use Pinterest to organize my ah, stuff by very subject good. matter. So. Yeah, good, yeah. cool. Well, the book is The Homegrown Pantry by Barbara Pleasant. It's uh, by Story Press, and you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash homegrownpantry. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. Did you know the best seeds for your garden don't come from the nursery? In fact, the seeds that will create the most robust and delicious fruits and vegetables come directly from your garden. This is because they are uniquely adapted to your growing conditions, better than anything you can buy from a fancy catalog or website. Through the magic of seed saving, it is quite possible to have the garden of your dreams. The best part is, Saving your own seeds is surprisingly easy and fun. With a bit of instruction, anyone can become a seed-saving superstar. Let us teach you how in our free seed-saving webinar. Just text SEEDS to 33444 to sign up or visit SeedSavingHacked.org for more information. That's SEEDS to 33444 or visit seedsavinghacked.org. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen three days a week for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. One of the first things that many of us learn when we start to garden is how to water and fertilize the soil. But there is an exception to this rule and it's called foliar feeding. You should foliar feed or water the leaves of your plant with liquid fertilizer when you want certain nutrients to be absorbed better. Not only are the leaves great at uptaking liquid fertilizer, if your soil isn't very good or your pH is off, foliar feeding can help your veggies and fruit trees quickly get the nutrients they need to thrive. 
If you're ready to start foliar feeding for maximum growth, yields, and quality, head on over to urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves to see our selection of foliar feeding products. That's urbanfarm.org forward slash feed the leaves.